Now, take your Bible with me, if you would. Let's go to 1 Corinthians and uh, chapter number 6. And so, uh, appreciate you coming out. we got a lot of visitors with us this morning. And uh, you should have received a blue Connect card when you came in. And uh, if you would, back at the Welcome Center on your way out, stop by and uh, say hey to us. Turn that in. We have a gift for you. We'd like to give you. Now, we're a couple weeks in, so i got to catch some of you up. And uh, I'll do my best this morning, but I would encourage you, if you're visiting with us this morning or just dropping in for the first time in a little while, to go back. Over the last four or so weeks, we've discussed and tried to discover uh, the purpose, the true purpose of creation and its relationship with the Creator. And uh, so we've been really chasing that idea down of trying to understand what the real reason for life, for family, for home, uh, for just just existing. What is the true purpose of all of this? And we started a couple of weeks ago on what we call True Purpose Sunday, looking at trying to establish, and not really, we didn't establish it, Christ established it himself, what his true purpose was. And uh, there are all kinds of places you could go today. There are all kinds of websites you could look up today that will give you a purpose for why Jesus came to earth. Uh, But Jesus himself established for us why he came. And uh, so you don't really need to go ask a priest or an online forum why Jesus came. Jesus himself asserts in John chapter number three that God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so he established for us why Jesus came. And so the whole purpose of Christ stepping onto earth that we'll celebrate next uh, uh, next month at Christmas time, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, now, let me ask real quick, total sidebar, how many of you have already started listening to Christmas music and you are going to be church disciplined? Raise your hand. Good. 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 How many of you are good godly Christian people and have not started to listen to Christmas music? Raise your hand. Those are my people. You got to get past Thanksgiving before you start listening to Rudolph. I, it's somewhere in the Bible. I haven't found it yet, but it is, it is my personal opinion. I'm just kidding. But uh, next month, we'll celebrate Christmas. We'll celebrate the purpose of Christ coming, Emmanuel, God with us. And so he established that for himself. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, the best news you'll ever hear is that he came for you. And uh, he came to die in your place to satisfy the Father's wrath on sin. And he has made a way for all men to come to him for salvation. And that's the purpose of Christ. Then we set in to try to understand what is the purpose of man? Why are we here? So if Christ has created mankind and put us here, what did he put us here for? And so for the last few weeks, I think it's been two now, we've been looking at when Christ created man in the garden and breathed life into that lump of dirt, if you will. He breathed life into the nostrils and gave that man and made that man a living soul. And when Christ made that man a living soul, the Bible tells us that he gave him a purpose. And so what is the true purpose of man? Why are we still here? Why didn't we get, we were talking about this in my class on Wednesday night, why didn't we just get saved and then taken to heaven right when we got saved? What's the purpose of man now? And we would say this, the Bible teaches us the chief end of man, the primary purpose of man is to glorify God. Uh, You and I exist for his pleasure. We are and were created. We were created to lift up and extol our creator and redeemer to point men to him, to lift him high so that when he's lifted, he draws all men to himself. And so we've been trying to understand for the last few months or last few weeks, 
why God created man. And we found, when we go back to the garden of Genesis chapter number three, we find that God, when he created man, gave him a handful of very specific purposes. We saw that God created man to be in his likeness. So you and I this morning, we were created to be like our God. We were created, the Bible tells us in in, uh, Genesis 3, to inherit the goodness of God that he desires for you and I to know him and to receive his blessings and to fellowship with him, to walk with him as Adam did in the cool of the day. Man was created to have dominion over the earth and the fish of the sea and over the fowls of the air. We were made to rule and reign with Jesus. He also shows us in Genesis before the fall uh, that man was created to inherit family, to have deep and personal connections with those uh, in his circle. And this was what we were created for. But over the last few weeks, we've also seen and established the Bible teaches us that we fell, that man fell into sin. Man chose for himself to determine good and evil. Man chose for himself autonomy out from the lordship of their creator. And because we fell, all of those aforementioned purposes broke. We lost our likeness to God. We are at best a shattered reflection of our creator and maker. Uh, his goodness and his presence at the garden when man fell was then guarded. Guarded. Man was banished, Adam and Eve, removed from the Garden of Eden. And God set a, uh, an angel with a flaming sword to, to defend his presence and integrity. Man could not come. So we had likeness, but it broke. We had goodness and blessing receiving from God, but now it's no longer accessible. We were given dominion, but at the fall, dominion has now so much lost its purpose and it's become perverted. Man subjects people for their own glory, but not for the glory of God. Dominion in its original purpose was that we would go subdue the world and bring it back to God. Now we're building companies and climbing ladders so we can subdue it for ourselves. So what we had became very broken and very misused and misguided. Even in our families at the fall, man, our families began to die. You think about it. When Eve was told, if you eat this fruit, you will die. Well, who's the first person on all of creation to die? It wasn't mom and it wasn't dad. It was Abel. The family began to erode and to decay because of the fall. But we saw last week these two words, but God. But God, who is rich in mercy and his love toward us, He sent his son to redeem mankind, to reform us, and listen, to re-invite us back into the process where we can glorify our maker, that we can come back to him and we can bring that that, that dominion with us and our families with us and uh, the likeness of God can be shown in our lives again and we can be back in inheriting the blessings and presence of our maker. Now, I told you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you would go there, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. We'll look at verse number 20 to start this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 20. It says, for you are bought with a price. This is speaking about the blood that was shed for you and I by Jesus. You are bought with a price, therefore. So because of that, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So listen, by the saving work of Jesus, you and I are invited back in to the possibility of bringing God glory. We saw last week that because of redemption, you and I are seated with him in heavenly places. We're given some of that dominion back. We are made heirs of the grace of God because of Jesus. What we once were, we no longer are because of Jesus. Our eternal destination is taking us back into our creator's presence. And we where we will be his people and he will be our God. And this is so we can inherit our inheritance once more. And so that really is just a synopsis of the last few weeks. So I, nothing new for those of you who've been here for the last three or four weeks, but for those just now visiting us as, as much as you can, try to wrap your minds around that idea that that's what true purpose is. God exists, or God exists as creator and created us to bring him glory. 
glory and to bring him pleasure. And, and because of the fall, we could no longer do that. But because of redemption, we now have that ability to a certain measurable degree. And so this morning, as we're going to close out our series, and it's been only three or four weeks, and so I would call it maybe a mini-series, I want us to take some time and develop what our inheritance looks like in our every day. Over the last two weeks, we've been developing kind of the big theme, right, of, of blessing and likeness and dominion and family. We've been seeing that theme all throughout the scripture. We saw it in Genesis. We saw it again last week in Ephesians chapter number two. Uh, we saw that in perfection, man fell, and because of the fall, redemption was had, and because of redemption, we now get to go back into that inheritance. But today, what I want to do is, I, before we end the series, I really do feel like going back and paying close attention to each one of those four things and how it applies to our life. Let me explain what I mean. We talked about likeness. Well, likeness is kind of a big intangible theme that, yeah, we were made to be like God. But what does that mean in your everyday? What does that mean to the, the stay-at-home mom or the working mom? What does the likeness of God mean to the young adult this morning? And so we're going to take some time and really try to nuts and bolts out likeness and dominion and blessing and family in light of the fact that God has redeemed us. If you're here today and you're not saved, number one, for the most part, I'm not so much speaking to that crowd. Uh, If you're here and you're not saved, man, you need to get saved. You need to get brought back into the inheritance. You need to be brought back to the table and back as a child of God. You were created a child of God, but by the fall, you are no longer. You're of your father, the devil, the Bible says. But through redemption, he brings you back to the table and he begins to invite your life to make more sense now and to begin to have purpose and partnership with him. And so I'm really going to be speaking to the saints this morning in these particular four areas. Likeness, How does that apply to your everyday? How are we supposed to be like God? By salvation, we're now enabled, but then then what do we do with that likeness? What do we do about the blessings of God? How does that affect my everyday? Number three, we'll talk about dominion. Uh, Are we supposed to, I was talking to my wife about this, are we supposed to go out and like take over the whole world and bring it back to Jesus? Uh, What is dominion? What's our relationship with dominion? And then what's our relationship with our family? Now, I don't want us to just learn about the big theme. I want us to learn about how it affects our every single day living. And so we're gonna spend our time looking at how that works in our every single day. So let's go ahead and pray and we're gonna jump right into the first one and we'll walk through them this morning. I hope it'll be a blessing to you. Lord, would you guide us? Father, you know where I need you and you know what's going on and you know every circumstance and situation here in this present moment in my mind and in our church's mind. And so Father, would you do something? Lord, I'll give you the glory for it. And I know that's not an enticing thing. All the glory belongs to you already, but Lord, I'll take my hands off of anything that happens here. I pray, God, your people will be edified. I pray that they'll grow. I pray that we'll look at these, these, these birthrights. Now that we've been saved, we, we get this inheritance back. But, Lord, we also it comes with some responsibility that we appropriate it to our everyday living, that, that we actually do live like you, that we actually do walk in the blessings, that we actually do exercise measurable dominion over ourselves and over uh, certain things in our lives. And, and uh, Father, also the idea that, that we're going to have a family that's supposed to glorify you, that is, it's so broken because of the fall, but it can be so beautiful because of redemption. And I pray that, Lord, in just a special way, you'd anoint this service. And Lord, I, I'll leave it at your feet this morning. You, you know exactly what, what, what I need uh, from you this morning. And so, Lord, would you meet with us, please? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I hope if you've been here, if you're new, I'm going to just kind of rattle those things off, those four things, because that's our sermon this morning. If you're not new with us this morning, you've heard that list already. Likeness, blessing, dominion, and family. And uh, this is going to be our course study for this morning. I, I want to digest them one at a time. You'll see in a little bit 
We don't necessarily get to do that. We're going to have to rip one out and save it for tonight, but I'll tell you which one that is in a moment. But let's visit first man's recreated likeness to God. So again, back in the garden, would you go to Romans chapter 8? But back in the garden, uh, the Bible tells us that God created man in his own image. Now, if you read if you read the book of John, the Bible tells us that Jesus created all things. And so Christ made us in his own likeness back in the garden. But at the fall, we, we lost that likeness to a, a measurable degree. And so Christ, through his redemptive work, is bringing us back in to his image and being reformed into his likeness. And so that likeness, if, if you will, has been breathed new life. There's, there's, there's a quickening spirit inside of us that can allow us to be like God again. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse number 6. It says, for to be carnally minded, to live after the world and the flesh, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity with God. And we saw that last week, that without Christ, you are an enemy of your creator. Uh, is at enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So before Christ, you couldn't submit yourself to the image of God even if you wanted to because you were dead in trespasses and sin. And that deadness is not something you could remedy. He must save you. Look at verse number eight. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. You realize before January 21st, 2001, before I got saved as a teenager, I was not pleasing to God. Now I was trying to do right and I was trying to do good, but even the times I do good, I did it for my own self. I did it for my own flesh. You know how that is. You want to give to the, uh, you know, the, the school foundation will put your name on a, on a star and put it on the wall. You're like, yeah, I'll do that. Even the good things we do as lost people are, are tainted with self uh, motivation. And so, but before that day, I could not please God, but then Jesus saved me. Jesus resurrected me, as it were. He quickened my inner dead man and made me alive. Look at verse number nine. He says, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your savior, you've never been given that quickening spirit that makes you alive. Well, then you are not his. Sometimes you'll hear kind of this trite worldly statement that, oh, we're all God's children. That's not true. Your kids don't belong to me. My kids, those are my kids. The ones that, that, I, uh, that were born into my family and the ones that are reborn into the family of God, those are his. The ones who aren't, they are none of his. That's what the Bible just said. So if you're here and you're not a child of God, well, then great news. You're in the right place. Uh, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, he must be born again. You must be born of water. There's a physical birth, but there's a spiritual birth that must take place. You must come by the way of the cross and accept the payment of your sin and call upon Jesus to save you. But again, in the flesh, you cannot please God. Verse number nine, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of God, he is none of his. Verse 10, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. There's a lot there. There's, there's someday resurrection going on, first resurrection theology in this passage. There's present day being quickened and resurrected in your, in your inner man going on. It's a beautiful passage. Essentially what he's reminding us is that man was made a living soul that because we sinned, we fell from that grace. We no longer possessed that forgiveness or that, that perfection and now needed forgiveness. 
but the Spirit through Jesus is bringing us back to life and once again back into the likeness of our Creator. So because of Christ, if His Spirit is in you, you should no longer be slaves to sin. You are no longer destined to be like yourself. You're actually destined to be like Christ. And I'll show you that. Just jump down a couple verses. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse number 28. Notice this. If you're His, here's your destiny. Uh, Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, the ones he knows are going to be saved, he also did predestinate to what? Predestinate to salvation? No, predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here's what he said. If you're here today and you are saved, can I just tell you, Christian, you will be like Jesus. You have a predetermined destiny. You will someday be like Christ. Now, that in its fullest consummation will happen after the resurrection. That in its fullest consummation will stand in the presence of God. We'll know him like we are known. We will be glorified. We'll pass from one substance to the next. We will be like him. But let me ask you right now, in the present day, if you have the spirit of God inside of you, he is actively trying to make you like him. He has set you on a predetermined path that will someday end in the glory and likeness of Jesus Christ. But Paul told the church in Corinth, that the Holy Spirit was trying to form Christ in them now, in their present day. So let me ask you, let's get real down to, down to our nitty-gritty everyday life. Let me ask you, have you surrendered to that process of likeness? If you have the Spirit of God inside of you, you should not only surrender to that process, you should embrace that process. You should embrace when the Holy Spirit of God convicts you for being an unkind spouse or an overbearing parent. What's he trying to do? Form the image of Jesus in you. And you should embrace that process. And yes, I know it hurts. Now, raise your hand if you like being wrong. None of us. Eddie, yeah, I get it. Nobody likes being wrong. Nobody likes that feeling of, oh, man, I missed that. I I made that mistake. Or, man, I hurt that person. Nobody likes that. Now, how many of you like, I would say less than liking being wrong, we like less being told we're wrong. That's worse. Like, if it's just, oh, man, we did wrong, and we kind of like, nobody noticed. It's kind of like when you trip, and then all of a sudden you're like, you just want to make sure. Like, it's not that bad if you fell and nobody saw it, but if everybody saw it, then it's worse, right? When it comes to the reworking of Jesus and reforming us to his likeness, we should not only surrender to it, we should embrace it. We should be grateful when the Spirit of God says, hey, hold your tongue, son. Hey, Casey, go apologize. We should embrace that process of likeness. We should cultivate that process of likeness. When we're not doing as we should and the Spirit of God begins to convict us, we should add water to that soil. We should cultivate that soil. Lord, what do you mean and what should I change it? How do you want me to be different? Because he's trying to make you into his likeness. It's not just some ethereal thing we lost in the garden and now through Jesus we get to be like him. No, it's an actual everyday kind of difficult process that we should be pursuing and chasing down. Let me say this. You are as much in the likeness of your Redeemer today as you have chosen to be. Because it's a process. Like if you chose today to be in the likeness of God, it's going to take you a while before you get there. It's a long-term process. You can't just decide today, be like, yep, I'm going to be like Jesus in every way tomorrow. No, because you've got a flesh and you've got habits, and you've got appetites, and this process of sanctification is the work of a lifetime. It's the work of grace in your life, but it's the work of likeness. He's trying to make you like him. And so the areas of your life that do not reflect the likeness of God are areas you have deliberately chosen to not reflect the image of your God. If you have a temper today, oh, it's because I'm Irish. No, 
It's because you chose not to let the Holy Spirit of God guide you. Well, I just have a hard time with forgiveness because I have too good of a memory. Nothing to do with it. It's because you chose not to forgive like Christ chose to forgive, right? And the Bible tells us that very, very clearly, that even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us, we should forgive each other. So your lack of likeness has nothing to do with, well, my parents were this way, or my bloodline is this, or I'm a Capricorn, or I got orange hair. None of that matters. Your likeness was, was given at creation, f- taken at the fall, re-given. The invitation to likeness is re-given through the person of Jesus Christ. So whatever area of your life is unquickened, it's because you chose it to be. Whatever area of your life, whatever room in your heart is unopened, it's because you chose not to open it. You're not obedient in your giving. Well, it's because we don't have money. No, it's because you chose not to be obedient. You're not a, you're not a patient husband. It's because you chose not to be a patient husband. Because if you're in Christ and he's in you, then he is beginning tenaciously to reform you into his likeness and he desires for you to grow. In fact, please go over to James. You've got to see it. If you're not going to turn to any other passage all day, just go to James chapter number four. It's a tremendous, powerful passage. It's both an indictment and a set of instructions for us on this exact topic. James lays the ax to the root. He says, hey, it's your fault. If Christ is in you, you have this power inside of you to change and to grow. If you choose not to, it's on you. But notice what he says in James chapter number four and verse number seven. James chapter four, verse number seven. I'll give you just a second to get there if you would. James four, seven says this, submit yourselves therefore uh, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You say, oh man, the devil's been riding me all week. Stop giving him a piggyback ride. Because if you resist him, what does he do? Read the text. He flees. He can't stay. Because greater is he that is in you than is he that is in the world. Well, you just don't understand, pastor, the temptation is so great. No, no temptation hath taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful that will with that temptation make a way of escape. So if you're, if you're being ridden by the devil, it's because you, you put him in your wagon and you're pulling him behind you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God and resist the devil and he will flee. Draw nigh to God. Notice the personal responsibility. And he will draw nigh to you. So listen, this morning, if you surrender to God, God draws nigh to you and the devil flees. He can't hang out in that. You draw in pursuit of your creator. You draw toward his likeness. You go after a deep abiding relationship with Jesus and get nearer and nearer to him. He gets nearer and nearer to you. And I get it. There are some times where you feel like, man, you're just navigating like a season of silence, you know? You ever feel that way? Like your prayer's just bouncing off the roof? I've been there. And sometimes the Lord will kind of pull himself away and, you know, so that we can pursue him and we can have a deeper relationship. But if you're here today and your sins have separated you from God, it's because you haven't drawn nigh to him. If you're here and you're saved, he has given you access. Let us come boldly into that throne room. But notice the personal responsibility. He says, draw nigh to God. Who's the onus on? Who starts that? Listen, if you're saved, he started that. But now that you are saved, man, you have some responsibility in that process. Draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So listen, there's a division of responsibilities between us and our God, right? The You and I, in our deadness of sin, could not please God. We could not draw nigh to God. And so he saved us, and at salvation, he is now giving us the opportunity to access him whereby we could not access him before. Now through salvation, we have access to him, but we also have responsibility to use that access. It's exactly the same for church. Hey, listen, you can come in anytime you want, but if you don't come, whose fault is that? 
You can be in the presence of God as often and as much as you want. You can be reformed into the image of Jesus in in as fast a way as humanly possible. But the responsibility of likeness is on us too. The opportunity is by Jesus, the Holy Spirit, but the responsibility is a personal one that we choose as regenerated Christians. We choose how much likeness we desire. We were made alive by the Holy Spirit, but it's our choice to walk with him. We were made alive, but it's our choice to cleanse our hands or to purify our own hearts. We were quickened by the gift of the Holy Spirit at at salvation, but we now have a responsibility to walk in that light. Look at verse number nine again, or or not again, but now in verse number nine of James. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. It's talking about that godly sorrow Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians, where he told the Corinthians, he says, you've sorrowed after a godly sort, and that godly sorrow brings you to repentance. That's a beautiful thing, Christian. So listen, if you're here today and you'd say, well, I am saved, so in that regard, I am like Christ. I'm an heir with Jesus. But if you're not like Christ in your everyday tangible living, then I, I, I would say it's, it's time to make some changes. It's time to start pursuing that. So how much do you reflect his grace? How much grace are you willing to give to a brother or sister, a person who messes up your order in the drive-thru? Do you reflect him in forgiveness toward your spouse or toward your children? Are you walking in holiness as he is holy? Are you being salt and light, that city set on a hill? Are you sharing in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ? Because listen, here's the big theme. We're talking about the everyday, how to apply that. But the big theme is this. We were given likeness at creation. We broke it in the fall. It's reintroduced through salvation. It's now our birthright as Christians, but it's also our personal responsibility to cultivate and embrace and grow into the likeness of Jesus. Now, if you're here, the fact of the matter is you can, you can put it in cruise control and be exactly the same the rest of your life. Someday you'll be like him, but you're going to miss out on the next one, which is blessing. That we were made to inherit the blessings of God. That's the second one we want to lean into that once we were, we were saved, we are now re-invited to go back into that place of blessing through a, a heart of obedience. Now, I looked up the word blessing, and, and I have a bunch of different Bible dictionaries, and here's the best one I came across. I want to give it to you. The, ble- the concept of blessing is primarily related to the situation people enjoy as a result of God's gracious, kind, and generous action on their behalf. So digest that for a second. Let me read it again. The concept, here's the definition of what it means you and I get a blessing. You and I, now we, we lost the blessing, and it was promised again through Abraham. And if you're just with us this morning, you're not going to maybe get that reference. But promised again through Abraham, through the seed of woman, all this blessing was promised. Now, now because of salvation in Jesus, we get to go back into that blessing. But what does blessing mean? The concept of blessing is primarily related to the situation that people enjoy as a result of God's gracious, kind, and generous actions on our behalf. So practically speaking, it means this. You and I, our life, we are sitting in a chair that God made. We're sleeping in a bed that God gave us. We're living a life surrounded by the daily benefits that he chose to give to us. Because, not because you're good and deserve it, but because he's good and he's God. That's what blessing is. It's not that I live, you know, you hear some of these athletes, you know, they're, they're so wealthy and they say, I worked real hard to get here. You might have worked super hard, and that's fine. You might have worked really hard to get your degree or to get in your position, but the fact of the matter is, without the grace of God, you wouldn't have had the breath or the strength to do any of that. You and I are inheriting the blessings of God. And I understand you say, well, it rains on the just and the unjust. It does. 
Absolutely. You and I exist. We, we are not consumed because of the mercies of God. But I'm not, I'm not talking about general blessings. I'm talking about as a child of God, you get to once again, if you've been redeemed, you get to once again enter in to that place of genuine blessing. And it's not because you deserve it. It's not because you're good. It's because he's been good to us. Because of Christ, I get to enjoy the state of God's goodness afforded to me, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. So you might think, well, how, how are we blessed, Pastor? Uh, and I don't think anybody here thinks, well, he hasn't blessed me. But let me, let me kind of give you some real practical, tangible ways that God says he's blessed us. Would you go to Galatians chapter number three? Galatians chapter number three. Number one, we are blessed with the gift of saving faith. He gave you your measure of faith to believe on Christ. You know, if you're here today and you're saved, you could have. Now, for me, I remember how, how I got saved, so I'll use my story, right? Uh, my neighbor across the street who went to school with my, my younger sister in kindergarten, uh, they went to church and they got saved, and then he came over, Dylan came over and invited our family, so we went. Well, let me say this. That's the grace of God. Yes, sir. Yes. Amber could have not gone to school with Dylan. Dylan could have lived three blocks away. Dylan could have never cared about us. There are so many ways that we would have missed the grace of God, but by the grace of God, I'm saved. He gave to me the gift of salvation. He gave, that's a house that he built. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Galatians chapter three, verse number eight says, for the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying in these shall all the nations be, what's the word? So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Here's what he said. I gave you the faith to trust in me. I, I showed you the gospel through the faithful witness of our God. I'm saved. I was, so we were talking about my, my testimony with Brother Hunter, Brother Josh earlier this week. And man, we were, we were lost. We were super lost. We didn't go to church. We, there was alcohol. There was, it, was, it was a rough situation. But I remember, man, God just in his goodness just left little, little pockets of light in my life. My grandma had given us this large selection of blue picture Bibles. And I don't know what they were, but I remember, man, reading through these pictures and seeing Adam and seeing the serpent and, man, wondering who is this God? Who is this God? All the while, he's, he's drawing me and he's, he's working in me. And, and I remember my grandma wrote a, a note to my mom and said, your kids aren't saved. They need to get saved. Well, at that same time, Dylan came over and must have just all been coincidence, right? Or just the good grace of God in my life. And if you're here today and you're saved, you know why? Because God is good. And that blessing of faith that you, have been re- that you have received is by the hands of a God who did for you what you could not do for yourself. So how has he blessed us? Number one, he's blessed us with saving faith. Number two, go to Romans chapter four if you would. He's blessed us by covering our sin. Oh, brother and sister, let me just tell you, God's a good record keeper. The, the biblical word is austere. The Bible calls God austere, that he is austere. He is exact in his record keeping. But I want you to see what Romans chapter four, verse six says. Romans chapter four, verse number six, a beautiful passage. And there's a couple words that we don't use very often. Um, they're accounting terms, but I want you to really try to pay attention to them. It says this, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Saying, here's the word again. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now the word impute, let me give it to you. It's an accounting term. It means this, to record credits and debits. So if you have a checkbook, right? 
Uh, you know, you got a paycheck. Okay, there's a credit. You got a, you, you spent money. Okay, that's a debit. That's what impute means. It's, a, it's, a, it's an accountant saying, okay, this came in and this came out. Did you notice what the Bible says here? That God imputes righteousness to us through Christ, and then he doesn't impute our sin? That is a beautiful reality. Because as a perfect record keeper, he knows I sinned. You know what he did? He didn't just fudge the books. He took my record, gave it to Jesus, took Jesus' record, and gave it to me. And you just keep reading in this passage. It talks about how cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. He took my sin and gave it to Jesus. He imputed my wickedness on him and imputed his righteousness on my account. And therefore, I'm not guilty before God. My sins are covered. And that is what you call a favorable status. That's what you call blessing. That I didn't deserve it, but I got it. He didn't just mess up the books. He chose to it pleased the Father to bruise the Son, that you and I could be saved. So how has he blessed us? Number one, he blessed us with saving faith. Number two, he's blessed us by not imputing our sin to us. Number three, through Christ, we receive the blessing of eternal partnership with him. I love this one. You got to go to Revelation for this though. Revelation chapter number 20. I told you we're doing a little bit more Bible study this morning. Y'all are doing a great job staying with me and uh, encouraging me. I certainly appreciate that. Revelation chapter 20, verse number six. We are blessed because we receive eternal partnership with Jesus. I just, I think about it, and I want you to as well, but your life, not mine. I want you to think about where your life was going before Jesus. Now, if you're here today and you're lost, hey, you're, you're still on this path, right? And, and tomorrow makes no sense, and today makes even less, because there's no purpose for it all. But for those who are saved, he took our purposeless life and joined it with his eternal purpose, which just doesn't, it just doesn't seem like he should have, but he did. Notice what he says in Revelation 20, verse number six. Read the first word out loud, would you? Blessed. And holy is he that hath a part in the first resurrection. That's the resurrection from the dead at the trumpet sound. On such the second death hath no power. But, so instead of being eternally damned, notice, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Listen, those who are his at his coming are given a position of partnership with him. Now, I don't have time to go into all of the eschatology of when we rule, how long we rule. Just suffice it to say this. Because of Christ, your life now has eternal purpose. Because of Christ, your today makes sense and tomorrow does too. You are living for something that will live beyond your grave. It will live beyond your career and your legacy. You are living for eternal purpose in the eyes of God. You will once again, and we don't have time to get to it, but you will once again have dominion over the earth. You'll rule over angels, the Bible says, in the, in the end times. But listen, personally, I have a hard time wrapping my head around this. I, who was once an enemy of God, a stranger and foreigner to the promises of God. I am now given the opportunity to partner with God, the God of the universe, for eternal significance. That my life that once would make no difference now can have eternal purpose. There's a purpose in my every single day, not just because I'm a pastor. There's a purpose in my every single day because when I interact with people at the gym, man, I'm salt and light. Uh, when I interact with people at the, the, the grocery store, man, I'm salt and light. There's eternal purpose. I'm not just clocking a nine to five. And you're not just clocking a nine to five if you belong to Jesus. Your life has eternal significance and value and it's partnered with him. And that, my friends, is what you would call a blessing. We are blessed because of saving faith. We are blessed because he does not impute unrighteousness to us, but rather he imputes the righteousness of Jesus. We're blessed because we're given an eternal partnership with Christ. And then I want to read you two verses. So you get to pick which one you want to go to. Either go to Psalm chapter 68 or Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1 or Psalm 68. You probably won't be able to turn to both. But I'll give you the chance to do it. 
We are blessed, number four and number five. We're just going to put them all together. We're blessed because he's giving us heavenly blessings. And then we're also blessed because he gives us everyday earthly blessings. Everything you and I have, whether in this life or the next, is because of not your goodness, but the goodness of God. And that's the definition of blessing. Ephesians chapter one is where I'll start. Ephesians chapter one, verse number three. I'm going to Psalm 68, verse 19. Ephesians 1, 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You know what? I'm blessed with a better temperament than I had when I got saved because of Jesus. I'm blessed with a better marriage than I could have ever had because of Jesus. But notice even in this life, it says in uh, Psalm chapter 68, verse 19, blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. You know what he said? He told us in James chapter number one, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So you and I, every good thing around you and every good thing waiting for you, crowns in heaven, a mansion, eternal security. Those are the spiritual blessings in heaven. But everything you have at your dinner table this afternoon is also a blessing from God. The health your children have this week is a blessing from God. The, the job that you have that provides for your needs is a blessing from God. And listen, I know that it rains on the just and the unjust, but when you're saved, at least we know where the blessings are coming from. And he's such a good God. And they're over there thanking the universe and thanking their boss. And you and I are over here saying, the blessings of God. He's so good to me. Look at he provided for this. He made a way through this wilderness for me. What a blessing. Now I've got a couple minutes and you're saying, oh, pastor, we're only halfway through. You got four points. You've only done two. I know. Get over it. I'm just kidding. No. Here's what I, I struggled so much. I, I cannot preach on dominion this morning. And here's why. I just don't have time. So I, 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 normally I'd try to like do one, two, and three, and then save four for tonight. Nope. We're doing one, two, four, and we're, or, yeah, one, two, four. We're saving three for tonight. Okay. So you got to come back tonight and see how dominion uh, relates to our life. God has made us kings and priests. He's, he's called us to have dominion. So what does that mean? Are we to take over the whole world and subdue it to the church? We're going to see what that means practically speaking tonight. So you got to come back for that. Um, but, but we're going to jump to point number four, if you will, how God desires for us to inherit family in light of what Jesus did for us. So we've talked about that list, right? We've got likeness, we've got blessings, we've got dominion and family. We're jumping over dominion, we're going straight to family. Because of Jesus Christ, how should my family receive that? How, how, what should my family practically look like? And this might be one that feels a little unique because it might feel like we never lost it, right? You think about it. Likeness in the garden was obliterated. We, we, we didn't possess that. Blessings was entirely forfeited. But Adam and Eve left the garden with their family. So you might think, well, what really changed? I mean, they had a family and then they chose to sin and they still had a family. So really, how did the fall affect our family? And I would say this in literally every way, every single thing that God intended for the family, Satan and this world have perverted and absolutely just totally manipulated. Uh, everything God designed as far as the authority structures of homes are shattered. Husbands are not accountable to God and wives are not submissive to husband and children don't follow or honor their parents. Selfishness has replaced uh, selflessness, the desire of God for the husband to the wife and the wife to the children and the children to the wife and the wife to the husband. All of that has been just tainted and utterly broken. The very definition of home is reclassified. Uh, who can get married? Who should get married? Sexual intimacy no longer requires marriage. 
everything God designed for the home to be is broken. The roles are thrown out almost completely. Men who are called to protect and provide. Now God says, stop provoking your kids. You're supposed to protect them. Instead, you're provoking them. Women who were once supposed to be helpmeets and good moms are now trying to rule over their home or trying to, and again, you may not like this, and that's okay. I didn't write the script. You'll have to bring this up with the author. These are not my words. Children who are supposed to be a blessing are now a burden and a drag on their families. Everything broke in the fall. But here's the beauty of the everyday gospel. It can restore what was broken. Just like it restores my likeness, just like it restores dominion, just like it restores blessing, it can and should be actively restoring your home and mine. God designed the home in the garden. You're not going to improve upon it. God designed the home. You can't redefine it. You can, and it shouldn't be ignored. Now, I get it. What I'm about to say is utterly disdained by the world. What I'm about to establish is biblical. The world hates. They think it's some kind of like archaic plague come back from the dead. You know, leave the 1300s in the 1300s. And I get why lost people, I get why lost people find that uh, annoying or uh, offensive. But what I don't get is why saved people would find it that way. You're the people of God. Hey, hey, right here, second row. I can hear you. Okay. I get why lost people don't like it, but I don't get why saved people don't like it. What I'm about to read to you is the intention of God for the home for those who are redeemed. If you're here and you're lost, none of this is going to make sense to you. It is going to seem so utterly alien because you're not his. And I'm not saying that to to besmirge your character. I'm simply saying if you were his, there would be a spirit inside you that would bear witness that, that you're his. But let me just, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read it. We're going to stop. We're going to understand it. We're going to digest it. We're going to read it. We're going to stop. We're going to understand it. We're going to digest it. We'll be out in the next few moments. So listen carefully. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Go there if you would. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. What you're going to find is God's recreating purpose. And And again, I don't mean that it's recreating in terms of the world's never seen it. He's trying to bring us back to what we had. Notice what he says. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Listen, at the fall, the Bible tells us that the heart of woman became that her desire would be to be over her husband. This idea of women rule everything is unbiblical. This idea of men rule everything isn't exactly biblical either. Jesus is king, and all dominion is to bring glory back to him. And so it's not that man is given some infallible right to exercise authority over every woman there ever was. You know what the Bible said to the wife? And to be honest with you, you're about to see it, and and unarguably true. Women have the easier role in this this text. He says, wives, you're supposed to submit yourselves to your own husbands. The biblical plan and the design that God has come up with is that the husband would be the head of his wife, not, not the dictator but a careful, loving husband who, who shepherds his wife. You're going to see like Christ does the church. You think about the word husband. I think it comes from the Latin. It's two words. It means house band, one who bands or leads the house. And the fact of the matter is, it was written into creation that a man should lead and that a woman desires to have a strong man. Whether you admit that or not, a woman desires to have a leader and a protector and a guide and a man who isn't just blown about by every belief and every hardship, a man who's durable and courageous. A woman doesn't want a couch potato potato, or a full-grown child, lazy, unengaged, slob, you know, falling in from work and sleeping on the couch. 
Listen, I'm not older than many of you, but I've done a lot of counseling in my decade and a half of ministry. And I can tell you unequivocally, the desire of every God-fearing woman is that her husband would be the guy who could face the storm with integrity and strength and a moral compass and a fear of God and just lead the family. Not that he'd be some jerk dictator that, you know, you, you're going to, you know, weigh, you know uh, fan me with palm fronds. No, that, that's not biblical either. But inside of the DNA of every God-fearing woman is a, is a desire to have a husband who she respects and who can stand in the gap. Let's just keep reading. For the husband, in verse number 23, is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the church, he is the savior of the body. Did you notice how Christ is the standard of how men should lead? It says that he's the head of the church, the savior of the body. He's the protector and redeemer. He's the one who took it on the chin, as it will, as you will, uh, for, the, for the sake of his bride. Verse 24, therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Let me just say this, women. You are not to submit to every man. You submit to your husband. You can't, men, you can't walk into the back door of Faith Baptist Church and look at some random lady and say, all right, but Ms. Racinos, make me a sandwich. You can't do that. She submits to her own husband. She doesn't submit to you. Uh, you don't have any authority over her. You have authority over your wife so long as you exercise the authority under Jesus. That's, again, a big problem, and we'll see that in just a second. But the fact of the matter is, uh, 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 the desire of God is that there would be some form of headship that a man would lead and that a woman would follow. But now let's shift our attention. The, the text shifts their attention to verse 25 to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That is literally the highest standard of love imaginable. That Jesus loved the church that he would die, he would shed his blood, he'd carry the cross, he gave himself in every single capacity, and Jesus said, hey, your standard of love for that woman is what I did for you. Man. Uh, to be honest with you, it almost be easier to submit to a child than it would be to submit to that standard of love. That, that I, that's my expectation. Look at verse 26. Um, verse 25, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Then he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Listen, men are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church, and that is a ridiculously high standard. That standard of love uh, prevents a chauvinistic, egotistical spirit. It prevents any kind of abuse or manipulation because Christ doesn't abuse or manipulate the church. It prevents selfishness because Christ wasn't selfish to the church. That standard of love calls men to self-denial and self-sacrifice. It calls men to personal responsibility and accountability. It calls husbands to be true men who will stand in the gap for their wife. And listen, as Christ carried our cross, we carry our burden, the, our, the burdens of our wives. As Christ loved and gave, so we love and give. Verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Listen, gentlemen, you know how it is. Let's just be honest with each other. You're cooking two steaks, one for the wife and one for you. Ladies, you don't know this happens, but it happens every time. You're looking at the steaks, Josh. You know what I'm talking about right here. You're looking at how thick this one is how small that one is. And you register in your heart, well, I've got more body mass to, to fuel. You know what you're doing? You're nourishing and cherishing your own flesh. And the Bible says to treat your wife. It's so weird, but God knows how men work. Like you would nourish and cherish yourself. 
That is how you should nourish and cherish your wife. Hey, hey, let me get you, let me get your shoes for you. Hey, let me get the door for you. Let me take care of you. Hey, let me, let me, let me give you the, the, the better. I don't, I don't want to go say, ahead and say the bigger steak. That's just not going to happen. Okay. I'm not, I'm not calling for that, man. There are legitimate reasons for that. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> but you do, you nourish and cherish your own flesh. And God says to nourish and cherish your wife. Verse 30, for we are members of his body and his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his, unto his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. That was God's design. Listen, marriage is a sacred bond that should be inseparable. And if done the way it's done in the garden, the way God designed for it, it should. Now, again, I know, let me say this. Let me just caveat. Uh, let me just kind of sidebar. I know there are people in the room who've not experienced marriage that way, perhaps in a previously failed marriage or perhaps in the marriage you're in right now. But let me just say this. If you're under grace, there is hope for you to reform into the likeness of God. Whatever was, isn't, and doesn't have to still be. Jesus can make you a better husband, and he can make you a better wife, and he can make you, as Ephesians 6, 1 is going to tell us in a second, the role of children to submit to their parents. He can reform you. Verse number 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and his wife see that she reverence her husband. We don't have time, but I wish we did, to talk about how a woman and respect, men deal in terms of respect. And so it's, it, it would behoove you women, it'd be very, very uh, um, beneficial to, to treat your man not like he's a child, but with reverence and respect. That is something God expects of you. We just saw this laundry list of things that God says, hey, husbands, you better do this. The wife is told to submit into reverence. The husband is told to love and sacrifice and give and so forth. But notice, and we're just, we're plotting toward this, and we only got a couple more verses and we're done. Verse number six, uh, chapter number six, verse one deals with children. Here's God's design for the home. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Let me just say this. It's funny to me because some husbands and wives who balked at the previous expectations are like, yeah, that one should be enforceable. Everyone's like, yeah, children should honor and obey their parents. But there are some wives in here who are like, pfft. The way God designed for a woman to submit to her husband, that's ridiculous. The, the child thing is right, and my husband should love me like Christ did the church, but my job's died. I shouldn't have to do that. And some husbands are thinking the same thing on the other side. Some kids are thinking, yeah, mom and dad should love each other, but I'm not going to respect or honor or obey them. The thing is, we all want everybody else to do their job. We want everybody else to have the likeness of Jesus. We want everybody else in church to be gracious like Christ and to forgive us when we mess up, but we don't want to have that expectation put on us. That's a huge problem because it's, it's not going to work. Uh, that's a house divided against itself. But listen, the reason we want our kids to honor and obey us is because it's right. It's the same reason that wives should submit themselves to their husbands and husbands should love their wives because it's, it's right. God's design for the home is one of love and respect and honor. It's one of selflessness. Children have a biblical responsibility to obey outwardly, but to honor inwardly. Keep reading, verse number four. And you fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture an admonition of the Lord. And I am done here. This was always God's plan for the home. And yes, it broke. And selfishness came in and intimacy lost its purpose. Cain slew his brother Abel. There was no honor to his parents. Adam failed to protect his wife from the serpent. But in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And you and I are invited back into the likeness and the blessings and dominion and family. All areas the gospel will reshape should we allow it to. Let's pray.